Well, we are talking about selflessness. It's within the series on partnership that comes out of Philippians. So let's take our Bibles and let's not turn to Philippians today. Let's turn to Acts chapter 16 instead. Now, we're still in our series on Philippians. But if you recall last week, we did look at Timothy as the uh, third example of selflessness. So what I want to do this week is pause and take a deeper look into Timothy. We're calling this a profile in partnership. You could call this a character study, maybe a biographical sketch. But I want to talk for a bit about Timothy and let's see what we can learn from his life specifically regarding God's call to us to be selfless, just like Philippians 2 talks about. Now, a few DYKs about Timothy while you're locating Acts chapter 16. Timothy's mentioned 28 times in the New Testament. He was part of, I think, five of Paul's church plants. Uh, he's known as a true son in the faith, so he's a top-tier relationship to Paul. And his first introduction in the Bible comes in Acts 16. This is when we are first introduced, when we first see Timothy, is Acts 16. So your Bibles are open there. I want us to learn some things about Timothy from this first introduction. The first five verses, you know, there's in, in hermeneutics or in Bible study, you can learn a lot what they call the principle of first mention. So often when something's first mentioned in the Bible, you take note of that. What's its usage? How's it intended? What's its name? You can learn a good bit about the, the concept, the person or the doctrine when it's first mentioned. So we're going to kind of do that today. We're going to see where Timothy's first mentioned and find out what is emphasized, what's said about him that we can take note of, and how does it relate to Philippians and the theme, especially of chapter 2, of selflessness. Acts chapter 16, you're there by now. Let's just take a look at the first five verses. I'll bring all of this after some explanation and exegesis to a simple point, and then what I'd like to do is, once we make that point, I want to extrapolate that a bit and help us see perhaps what it looks like in our life. So here's Acts 16, 1 through 5, the first time we hear of Timothy. Verse 1 says that Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. You'll notice that this is different than the last time these two towns were mentioned. They're in reverse order because Paul is now on his second missionary journey. He's making his way back, helping the churches establish elders and proper authority and making sure they're in good shape. And so he's making his way back. He lands in Lystra and he, and there he meets a disciple named, say it with me, church, Timothy. He's the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. Just understand, this is a loaded verse. It tells us a lot about Timothy. First of all, his mother's a Jew, his father's a Greek. It appears by the tense of the word was that his father is probably already passed. So I tend to believe Timothy was raised by a single mother, at least for a portion of his life. This may explain why in one of the epistles to Timothy, his grandmother is mentioned. Maybe his grandmother moved in upon the death of his father. So Timothy, in my opinion, we can't be dogmatic about this. I think he probably was raised, at least a portion of his life, by a believing single mom. But the phrase also is a contrasting phrase, meaning that Timothy's dad was probably an unbeliever. You see the, 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 the ambiance of the phrase, don't you? 
His mother's a Jewish believing woman, but his father was a Greek. I tend to think his dad was an unbeliever who passed away. Timothy was raised by his mother primarily, and then, of course, his grandmother helped. This is, to be frank with you, why Timothy was a Christian. That his mother and grandmother took such a a keen interest in making sure he understood the Old Testament. So at this point, the New Testament was not uh, written. And so when you see the words scriptures in those uh, epistles to Timothy about how he was raised and how his mother and grandmother taught him the Holy Scriptures, it's a reference to the Old Testament. And that's how Timothy became a Christian at an early age, a young child. And so he continued to grow in that. This is an interesting thing because we're going to see this plays an important part later. But Timothy was taught the word of God by his mother, his grandmother. He believed it. He trusted it. And I would say for years he lived it. Now, some would say, well, how many years, Todd? How old was he when he was in Acts 16? The jury's out. Some say 16, 17. I've heard folks say 30. We don't know. Did you hear that? We don't know. Okay. My guess is I'm going to probably land in the early 20s. Um, So let's just go with that, at least for our time together this morning. Here's a young man, early 20s, 21. His father has been absent because he passed away, but he's learned his Christian faith from his mother and grandmother. He's a solid, um, can we say long-standing believer because 21's not old, but he's been saved since he was a kid. So as I read this, I, I just automatically have a lot of gratefulness for my parents who did this with me, taught me the scriptures from a very early age. For our parents in this church who are doing this with their children, teaching their children the scriptures in a variety of ways, through different programs and methods, but at home, at church, you are just pouring the Bible into your kids. Many of them have come to Christ, are believers, and they're young, but you're molding them and forming them. You have little Timothys in your household. and Do not quit and do not give up. It is worth it. Here's one practical way it's worth it. We say it like this. I know it's not theologically accurate, but it makes horizontal human sense. We say it like this. I'm so glad we have a lot of boring testimonies in our church. Like you've heard of the wild and crazy testimonies everyone listens to and they love, right? The guy who was saved, but he sowed a lot of wild oats. And so you're like, oh, man. Now, theologically, it takes as much grace to save a five-year-old who has sown no wild oats than it does a 25-year-old who just finished sowing wild oats. And the church says, we know that. But horizontally, humanly, I'm thankful for the 5-year-old, the 8-year-old, the 10-year-old who saved early and doesn't sow the wild oats because when you're 40, it's a lot less baggage to pack. Amen? This is Timothy. Man, God saved him early through the influence of a godly mom and a godly grandmother. And he just served the Lord. He was faithful. He was obedient. He just loved Jesus, it appears, his whole life being at home. So how do we know that? Look at verse 2. It says that the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. So whether you think he's 25 or 18, he's a young man. And in some way, the believers, the church, that's what brothers and sisters refers to, in two cities thought highly of a guy pretty young. 
How does that occur? Because he's proven himself over a number of years when he was young. Praise God for teenagers, elementary kids, young adults who don't follow the path of the culture and think, hey, I can do what I want for a few years. This is my time to live it up. No, they stay faithful to God and they build a life of integrity and character even while they're young. Amen? This is Timothy. What a beautiful introduction just in two, two verses that shows us he had a beautiful home with his mom and his grandmother in spite of an unbelieving dad. He became a Christian early and he followed Jesus wholeheartedly even as a young man. This explains why Paul then in verse 3 would want to take him with him. You see verse 3? Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. Now Paul was on a church planting journey. That's what he did. He began usually in Jewish synagogues. And that's where he would begin his outreach. Not always the case, such as in Philippi, but often he would start in the synagogues, reason with unbelieving Jews uh, from the Old Testament about Christ as the risen Messiah, and then Gentiles who were listening as well. And then from there, the disciples would then form a church, and then they would eventually appoint elders. And so that's kind of Paul's strategy, his method. He saw Timothy, and he realized what a win this would be from the Jewish angle and the Gentile angle. So he says, Timothy, why don't you come with me? And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here's another reason I think his father was an unbeliever, because the word Jews here is referring to unbelieving Jews. Though they were religious, they were trusting themselves and their law keeping for salvation. They were usually Paul's enemies. And so Paul knew that if these were the folks who were in the synagogue trying to attain their own righteousness, and this is where he started his church planting efforts often in the town, if he took with him someone who knew the Gentile culture well because uh, they knew his father, right? Well, he, uh, he was a Greek, so his son's probably not circumcised. He's not really Jewish. Paul thought, that's good for the Gentiles, but that's not going to work for me to get traction with Jews especially think they can attain their righteousness by the law. And so he takes Timothy, and with Timothy's permission, he circumcises him. Now, let me just appropriately and uh, factually make you aware that circumcision was a, a physical procedure done to those who were, to males who were eight days old, and it was a sign that they were in the Jewish covenant community. So it was a physical procedure with a spiritual significance. Gentiles were not obligated. If a Gentile slave of that culture or uh, someone, a foreigner or an immigrant were to come into the covenant community, they too uh, would be circumcised. Now, I will just say to our kids in the room, it's an odd timing, I realize, to talk about this subject on a week you're all in the room. I would encourage you to talk to your parents. It is a cultural thing even today, though it's not a theological thing anymore. It's a cultural thing. Talk to your parents about that. It's not a bad topic. It's in Leviticus. It's in the Old Testament. It's talked about in the New Testament. So just talk with your children about it factually and appropriately. Just know that in this case, it was an obstacle to gospel progress and, and, and traction with the Jews. For Timothy, he had not been circumcised, no doubt because of his father's influence as a Greek, probably saying, 
He didn't want his son to um, be circumcised when he was young. But now that his father's passed and Paul wants Timothy to go with him, and since Paul's strategy is to begin with unbelieving, law-keeping, very uh, you know, religious Jews, he realizes this will be a problem. They know Timothy's father. How will Timothy be able to say, yes, uh, I'm part of the covenant community? Without saying this is what you do to be saved, but this is this can't be an obstacle. So he asked Timothy, Timothy, will you be circumcised for the sake of serving in the best way possible people who don't believe and are lost? And Timothy obviously says yes to this as a young 20-year-old man, I believe. Verse 4 then describes that they begin to travel through the towns, such as Iconium, other places that you'll see on his missionary journeys. And they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Don't you love that last verse? Here's the result of Paul's ministry among primarily Jewish and, yes, secondarily Gentiles. They were all, you know, uh, coming to Christ. Many of them, they plant churches. This happened because Paul took Timothy with him and because Timothy was willing to selflessly be circumcised for the sake of gospel traction and, and the mission of God, I find this to be an incredibly selfless illustration of Timothy. Wouldn't you agree? A very sacrificial moment. And don't you think it's very sovereignic, shall we say, or very indicative of what we want to know about Timothy when we realize this is the story that we're, we're given when we're first introduced to Timothy. That a young man saved early and then as a young man, he, he's got a crucial decision to make, but he makes it not in light of what he wants, in light of what's best for the mission of God and what Paul would ask. It's a great picture of selflessness that ties in so well with Philippians 2, where Timothy there, you know, Paul speaks of him very highly. He says, no one thinks of you like Timothy. He thinks like Christ. Here's an example of when that started. It's when he was young in a very um, difficult decision. And yet he put the mission of God and the strategy of Paul above his own desires. What a beautiful introduction to Timothy, showing him to be a very selfless individual. Now, as I read this story, and, and there's so much more there, but here's three words that, I, that just kind of blanketed me. I thought, first of all, like you are right now, that's pretty selfless. I also thought that's pretty strategic. I mean, it's a very specific action Timothy had to take, and he did it because he's very missional. He knew what was at stake, the mission of God, reaching those who have yet to hear, the ministry of planting churches and evangelizing people. And so I think three words that kind of blanketed me were selfless, strategic, and missional. And I began to kind of put this into a simple sentence. Now, I think I would sum up Timothy's first introduction to us in the book of Acts in this way. Just jot this down, would you? Kind of say this in your head with me. That the mission of God demanded a strategically selfless partner. Now, I put that in the past tense because we want to, first of all, see what the text meant to the original audience. It's always good to start with the text as it was written and to whom it was written. And what is Luke trying to say to those who are reading the history of the church? This is how the church grows. This is how the mission continues, through strategically selfless 
partners. This is what the mission of God demands. I mean, Timothy's story is no doubt to those first readers an, an object lesson. It's an illustration of what could be demanded of others. This is what Luke's trying to communicate. So if I were to say it within the context of the context, what did the author try to communicate originally? I would say that the mission of God does depend, it did depend upon a strategically selfless partner whose name was Timothy. But let's translate that to our current context without violating any contextual thing in the book. We can say correctly, accurately, biblically that the mission of God today demands strategically selfless partners. You see, selflessness now becomes more than just like, I've got to somehow don this trait. I've got to drape this uh, trait on me that I'm not sure what it looks like. No, you, you begin to realize there's a, there's a strategy behind our selflessness. And what is it? It's the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's progress in the mission of God. That's why we want to be not just selfless, but strategically selfless. As I thought about this, and those words blanketed me, and just meditating on this, I was reading through some of the newsletters I get on a weekly basis, and one of them had a survey. I get a few pastor emails, pastor newsletters. One of them had a survey recently of evangelical church members and their reaction to various parts of the Great Commission. And the, the point of the survey's questions were, you know, how selfless, how um, pointed are our actions, how committed are we to living in light of the Great Commission? So they surveyed evangelical church members. Keep that in mind, okay? That would be like most of you in this room, evangelical church members. And so to just kind of begin the survey, they, they wanted to know, well, let's find out if they know about the mission of God before we can really dive into how well they're living in light of it and are they being selfless for it. Let's see if they know what it is. So they asked this question. First question. I'll make sure I get it right. Read it for you correctly. Do you know what the Great Commission is? 51% said no. Now, if I read that survey and realized it was like the, the community, I'm like, well, of course. But these are evangelical church members asked, asked do you know what the Great Commission is? And 51% said no. Now, that might not be a mark against the church members. That may be a mark against church leadership, to be frank with you. But 51% said no. 25% said they couldn't remember it. They were, in other words, that name, I think, I, I know that that tag, that label, I think that's a church label, but I don't know what it, you know, can't remember it. 6% said they weren't sure they knew what it was. Only 17% said yes, they knew what the Great Commission was. Now, in case we're an average evangelical church, and in case there are 51% of you who don't know why you should be strategically selfless, here's the Great Commission. Can we just start at block A? 
Amen. Here's the Great Commission. The last words of Jesus, which should be our first concern. This is the church's marching orders. This is why we say in the three things that contain our strategy, we celebrate the gospel, we grow in community, and we serve the mission. We don't serve a mission. We don't serve many missions. We serve one mission. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. He's the commander in chief. He's the head. Christ is technically. But God gives the commands. And his command before he ascended was to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them to obey. So we have one set of orders to develop devoted followers of Jesus, to make disciples. As you make disciples, they form in the churches. So we often say we plant churches. You can use words like that, but they're all aimed at making sure this gets done. You with me? That's the Great Commission. We say often that this is the last, these are the last words of Christ and they're our first concern. So that's the Great Commission. That's what in the average evangelical church, apparently, the survey said 51% said they didn't know what that was. Now, here's why I bring that to your attention. Not to guilt you, to try to leverage you or to make you laugh or to make you squirm. It dawned on me as I was reading these five verses, thinking through them and looking at Timothy's example, connecting to Philippians 2. We often expect strategic selflessness, right? But we're, we will be disappointed, we'll be let down if we don't even know why we're being selfless. If we don't know the Great Commission, but we're expecting people to act a certain way in light of it, we need to back that train up and say, hey, here's the mission of God. This is why we, we are asking for, calling for. This is why Philippians 2 says, live a selfless life, live unified, live with the same mind, the same way of thinking. And in Timothy's case, he believed it so deeply that as a young 20-year-old man, he said, I'm willing to be circumcised so the gospel gets traction among unbelieving Jews and I don't hinder Paul's ministry of church planting. What an example of selflessness. So here's our take-home truth in its shortened version. Acts 16, 1-5. What was true then? What's true now? Will you say it with me? The mission of God demands strategically selfless partners. Now, I want your mind, to, for, as we close, to think with me about what that might look like. But don't make it up yourself. I won't make it up. I'm going to go back to our text, and I want to show you briefly three things or three ways or three components of a strategically selfless partner. I want to kind of add some color to this because I suspect all of you would agree with this take-home truth. You would agree with Acts 16, 1 through 5. You may feel the weight of that. You may feel a little guilty. You may feel like, man, I got to get to work. You may feel a lot of things, but you, you're probably not going to disagree with that. We know we should invest our resources and give our time and adjust our perspective. We know the mission of God should should be the, the wall against which the ladder of our life leans. We know that, but often we don't understand what does that look like? Like, give me some of the finer details. And I love this text because it actually does that. Three things that would describe a strategically selfless partner. First of all, they are biblically 
faithful. And I find this in verse 2. It just, again, it's, it's referencing Timothy's raising, his maturing, and the fact that even as a young man, whether he was 18, 21, or maybe 28, two churches spoke very highly of him. And he was still pretty young. So highly of him that the Apostle Paul said, I want him with me. They had observed and they knew that Timothy was biblically faithful. In other words, this is an issue of theology. Timothy wasn't budging on things God had revealed in the Old Testament. That the Messiah would come, his name would be Jesus, he would save his people from their sins, and you can list them out. Timothy landed on the Old Testament and said, this is God's word. As Paul, of course, penned much of the New Testament, other writers did too. Timothy clung to that as a pastor in Ephesus. Timothy was a biblically faithful follower. Where God drew the lines, Timothy stayed in the lines. He didn't try to change the Bible. He didn't try to adjust the parameters. He said, I didn't write it, I just deliver it. And Timothy was biblically faithful from an early age all the way through. In fact, did you know that we don't have this in the Bible recorded, but history from the first century says that Timothy was martyred in this way, that as a very pagan, sexually immoral parade was coming down the streets of Ephesus, he emerged and spoke publicly against it and decried the immorality and the public blasphemy against God and the Bible. And he says, the history says that the crowd so angered rushed upon Timothy and beat him so badly that within two days he died. Now, that's not recorded in the scripture. That is a historical record. Is it accurate? Is it not? You can be the judge. It seems pretty accurate because there's multiple historians from those centuries that seem to say the same thing. But when I read that story, I think, wow. Praise God for a, a man, a historical man that we can look to who from his early childhood to the day of his death was biblically faithful to proclaim God's word. Amen. That was Timothy. And that's the mark of a strategically selfless partner. He stayed in Ephesus when Paul needed him to, to preach the Bible, to reach the city, to train the believers. When Paul needed him to go to other places, he would accompany Paul. So we just see that Timothy was biblically faithful. He stood on the scriptures from day one. Remember, this is an issue of theology. This is exactly, by the way, why Titus was not circumcised. Okay? And I want you to connect some dots here. Timothy was circumcised not because he needed to be saved. It's not a salvific issue. But it was a service issue. It was a way to remove an obstacle, remove a hindrance to unbelieving Jews. The people calling for Timothy's circumcision were not those who felt like, Timothy, you better do this to be saved or you can't go on ministry with Paul. They weren't saying they were. Paul was just simply saying it will remove a hindrance. In Titus and Galatians, Titus did not get circumcised. And Paul said, do not get circumcised because the folks who were critical were saying, Titus, you better do this to get saved. They were against grace and pro-law. And so Paul said, we're not doing that. That's why you can balance Acts 16 with Acts 15. Acts 15 is the 
conclusion of this debate about circumcision. And the decree was Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. And yet in the next chapter, Timothy is not to be saved, but to serve in the best manner possible and to remove hindrances. When it came to Titus, Titus said, no, I won't get circumcised. Paul said, no, you won't. He didn't because they were looking at it the wrong way. My point is this same issue. But in both cases, both men were biblically faithful. They stood solid on grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. If I could do something to help the gospel advance, I will, but not to be saved. And Titus says, you're going to help. I'm going to, you know, sabotage the gospel if I get circumcised. So I won't. Both men biblically faithful. That's a strategic selfless partner. In those examples, you also see that both men, especially Timothy, they were culturally flexible. This is the second trait of a strategically selfless partner. I find this really in verse 3, not to rehash it or review it unnecessarily, but just notice verse 3. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was a Greek. And so because this was not a salvific issue, but a service issue and a strategy issue, Timothy agrees. And it does advance the gospel. It does give the gospel traction among those who were unbelieving and who were Jewish. So if the first one's a theology issue, this is a strategy issue. And where we can bend and flex strategically without compromising theologically we should consider that it's not a sin it's a culturally flexible moment to see if the gospel could get more progress in a different way without violating scripture these are tough waters to navigate okay these are maneuvers that aren't for the faint at heart but i would challenge you to highly consider what it looks like in your life to be culturally flexible but yet theologically, biblically faithful. Ask yourself this question. Is there anything in my life that I'm holding to as a preference that's actually preventing people from hearing the gospel? Just ask yourself the question. If you're afraid to ask that question, that might be a harder (laughs) issue. Just ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I'm holding as a preference that if it were preventing folks from being saved, I would give that up. There's probably a host of things we could talk about. I won't do that in this message. I just want you to see Timothy was dealing with something that was personal, difficult, and what his main decision-making filter was was not his own comfort or his own way, but the mission of God, the progress of the gospel. He was culturally flexible. I often think about Hudson Taylor and his days in China. Here's a guy that's not Chinese, but when you look at pictures of Hudson Taylor, he's dressed like a Chinese. You know what he's doing? He's trying to be as much Chinese as possible so that he wins credibility with people. Those are cultural things, clothes, what you wear and how you interact. He's like, I want, to, I want them to know I'm, I'm one of them as much as I can be. You find this with missionaries who are in places that are closed or have very little access or are hard to get to or dangerous. Often, they will become a citizen, if at all possible, so that they can 
increase credibility, establish identity. These are cultural issues that we need to remain flexible on in the missiological, in missiological world. Uh, this is often referred to in general terms as a, as a C scale. You may call it a contextualization scale. In other words, how much of your life will you contextualize to your culture in order to reach the culture? Now, in missiological circles, it is a scale. So I'm going to be really frank with you here, really transparent. Uh, I think it's, I'm looking to the Davenports for an answer. I think it's one to six. It may be one to seven, one to five. If you Google it and I'm wrong, give me some grace here. I'm kind of speaking extemporaneously for a moment, okay? Um, I think it's like C1 to C6. If you're a C6er, there's probably nothing that you couldn't culturally do or be part of to see folks get saved. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. I'm simply stating that the higher the number, it means you have a higher degree of quote-unquote flexibility. If you're like a C1, I think it is, you're like, man, you're just like trying to westernize everybody. You know, it's kind of like that mindset. So you should look that up and see what it is because um, there are some things that as a missionary I wouldn't culturally do if I were in that field probably. I would feel like it would overstep maybe my identity as a Christian. But there are certain things I know I wouldn't hold on to. I let all that go. Because it just doesn't fit the culture. Are you, are you tracking with me? Really, we all wrestle with the C-scale, even if we're not moving to a least-reached area. We all wrestle with how culturally flexible will I be to see people come to Christ. I'll give you just a small example. It's really small. It's actually dumb. We were in Guttenberg yesterday, and we went to help you know, lay some more groundwork for our campus there. And the Lord did some really neat things. I'll share more later. But one thing we weren't expecting was the news that yesterday was the day that the fish flies hatched. Who here knows what a fish fly is? Okay, I didn't. Julie didn't. When Rita and Jean explained them, we're thinking, you know, it's like the attack of the gnats. And so we were like, well, well, we'll be okay. And Julie had on a white shirt, and Rita said, and they love white. They love yellow. They'll be all over you. And they were saying things like, you know, sometimes by the evening we'll see houses, they'll just be covered. They'll go from white to black. And she goes, they only live a day. And so tomorrow morning, you know, we'll often have to pick them up. She goes, sometimes they'll call in the snow plows. They'll be having to, you know, two or three feet deep of these fish fries. So I'm like, is this Egypt? Like, what's going on here, right? <laughs> well, we, we walk down to where the event is, and sure enough, we're, all these things are flying at us. Well, I was expecting, and Julia was, we were expecting like a gnat-like thing. So I say, man, what are these things as well, these locusts? She so goes, that's the fish fly. I mean, they're just zooming at us like bombers. They're landing on us. They're, at that moment, I was like, I prefer Ankeny culture more than Guttenberg culture, okay? <laughs> but we both looked at each other and was like, you know what? It's just a day. They'll be dead tomorrow morning. We'll be home. It's a dumb example. It's small. But just multiply that in any way you can. Or think about your areas in which when a culture is different, could you sacrifice? Could you adjust? Would you bend and be flexible if you could? 
still remaining theologically faithful for the sake of the gospel. I'd remind you, when you see someone who's flexible, don't forget the first part of that word, flex. It's a sign they're strong. Last trait of a strategically selfless person, a strategically selfless partner, is they are spiritually fruitful. Follow the pattern of the text. That after uh, verse 4, they visited the towns and the churches. The churches were strengthened and the, uh, they were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. So watch this. Progress was the issue. So let's just follow the equation. Theology is the issue in being biblically faithful. Strategy is the issue in being culturally flexible. And progress is the issue in being spiritually fruitful. And it's okay to say this, that we do want to see fruit. We're not after fame. We're not after fortune. We want to see faithfulness and fruitfulness. Often folks try to separate those. But I'm, I'm uh, probably of the opinion that much like evangelism and discipleship go together, fruitfulness and faithfulness go together. Let's not cut this baby either. And fruitfulness and faithfulness come from, from these two things. So where you can be faithful and flexible so that the gospel sees fruitfulness, do it. That's actually the goal, is that the gospel gets traction. Churches are strengthened. They're planted. Believers are, are encouraged. And, and folks come to Christ and are saved. This is the point of the text. That this mission of God that we're on, this great commission that we've been given, it demands a certain kind of partner. And that kind of partner is one who is biblically faithful, culturally flexible, spiritually fruitful. See, that should be the end result of a selfless, surrendered posture. So can we lengthen our take-home truth just before we close? And can we say it together? Here's these five verses, really in a nutshell, with Timothy's, um, you know, example of Philippians 2, with that kind of in our back, background. Here's Acts 16. Let's all kind of blend it together. We're continuing on our theme of selflessness. Say this with me, church. The mission of God demands strategically selfless partners like Timothy, who are biblically faithful, culturally flexible, and spiritually fruitful. So while I want you to see Timothy and be motivated in the right way by his example, both of Philippians 2 and Acts 16, I would be remiss if I let you rest at Timothy because the more I thought about Timothy and these words of flexibility, cultural, flexi uh, cultural flexibility and faithfulness you know, to God and his word as well as fruitfulness, I just realized that this is what Jesus did as well. I mean, think about this. He became a man. The second person of the Trinity was so culturally flexible, he put on human flesh to identify with us, to die in our place, to be our offering, to be our high priest as the offerer. And was that fruitful? Oh, you know it was. Because that's why you and I are saved. And what was the point of Jesus 
culturally entering into our, uh, you know, arena and dying in our place and paying the price for sin. It was so that God would be satisfied. Jesus was biblically faithful to the mission of God. From eternity past, the Trinity knew this is what the Son would do. Jesus carried through perfectly, donned human flesh, gave his life, was raised again, and now all who believe in Christ can be saved. In every right sense of the phrase, Jesus was biblically faithful, culturally flexible, and spiritually fruitful. And all the church should say, Amen. So yes, look at Timothy. But know this, Timothy was looking at Jesus. As Philippians 2 says, he thinks just like Jesus Christ. Can we as a church continue in our posture of selflessness? And deepen it even more by being strategic with it so that more people know about God and His mission continues.